0: Uh, Immersed in my studies for the Sunday morning series about tithing and giving and stewardship. Uh, But what it all points to is commitment and discipleship. And I know I say for myself, I think you would agree with me, we don't want this church to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We can go deeper, there can be some substance as to who we are. Uh, Way too many are giving up on that many churches are being shallow and only conveying half the message. There's a responsibility for every believer that accompanies, accompanies, accompanies the privilege of sitting at the banquet table of God, of just being able to enjoy the goodness. I think it's Bill Hybels who said this, Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. I believe he's right. If you believe Jesus died for your sins... He came back from the dead, He gave you the gift of eternal life, He's prepared a place for you in heaven, and you're going to want to live differently, you're going to alter your life, change your actions, and that's what I want us to look at tonight, I want us to look at three challenges, and these are going to come from Luke 14, my Sunday morning class, we've been studying different parables, and we've been in Luke some, well actually all of the gospels. But I want us to look at this passage from Luke 14. So open your Bibles and you can follow along. I want us to see these three challenges. The first one is this, to prioritize correctly. Now remember the setting of Luke 14. We're about midway through the gospel. But where we are in Jesus' ministry, he's at the height of his popularity. People are coming to him from everywhere, throngs of people. He had taken on the religious leaders. Nobody had ever done that before. He had challenged their hypocrisy and how they had missed the mark. And so they loved the way he taught. And so crowds were huge. People were coming from everywhere. Look at Luke 14, beginning in verse 25 and 26. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we read that. In our culture, that sounds contradictory to other scriptures we know that Jesus tells us to love our parents, to honor our mother and father. And how cold-hearted it sounds for him to say we should hate our family members and even hate your own life. But what we know when we study this text and know the background here, it's a hyperbole. It's a Jewish idiom. It's a drastic expression. It's like someone comes into the kitchen right before dinner time and they say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. We know what they mean. They don't mean what they're saying. But we know what they mean. That's what's going on here. It's a vivid hyperbole. It helps people to understand the contrast there. We have to love the Lord much more than anybody else, even family members. You might remember Genesis 29, the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Jacob's first wife was Leah, but that wasn't his choice. That was because of some trickery by his father in law. I put on the screen verse 30. We're told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And we understand that because Rachel's the one he worked for. And so that's a fair statement. But the next verse, in verse 31, it says, The Lord saw that Leah was hated. But that's not what the verse before that said. It so he loved her more. Because that's what it means. It means he hated her. It's contrasting. Compared to Leah, there was nothing. Because Rachel is where his devotion was. Robert Stein says this is a Jewish idiom. It's saying that you love the Lord more than anyone else. Maybe that's why the way Matthew records this statement is maybe more understandable for our Western 21st century years. Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves a son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So, what Jesus is saying here, really, a brief lesson on priorities. Keep the main thing the main thing. He comes first. Don't let human relationships supersede divine relationships, even family. So, a key to becoming a responsible Christian is learning to prioritize your relationships and keep them in the right order. Throughout Scripture, we're told this to love and care for our family and our friends and even our enemies. Several friends were out deer hunting. You might remember the story. And they divided up into pairs. At the end of the hunting day, they were kind of making their way back to camp. But one hunter came alone, pulling this huge deer, eight point, just huge, just huffing and puffing. And they were admiring the, their deer, but they said, Where's Harry? He said, Well, Harry was helping to pull him out of the woods, but he passed out. And they said, So you left Harry and you brought the deer? And his response says, Well, it was a tough call, but I didn't think anybody would still (laughs) hear (laughs) it. Life is full of opportunities, of decisions about life, and you gotta prioritize correctly. Sometimes the most difficult comes when the plans of life are not your plans, or the dreams of reality are not your dreams. Especially when they're the plans of your children's future. We want what's best for them. We dream about this all their lives, even before they're born. To bring them up. And we've got plans for them, dreams for them. And they don't always come true. They don't always choose the path that we would choose for them. One guy who worked for a Christian school as a recruiter said he spent a majority of his time trying to help teenagers. He said it wasn't hard to get people to come to a Christian school. He said more of the challenge was to help their Christian parents understand when that young Christian wanted to go and do something for the Lord and it wasn't necessarily what their parents had in mind they didn't think their son would want to go into ministry maybe be a preacher or their daughter would go to a third world country and, and help orphans what they thought is she'd marry the guy next door and they would be at the family dinner table every Sunday for lunch And how do you accept when their plans, their dreams to follow the Lord is not what you plan, not what you dream? Sometimes parents had a bad experience with church, and so they to protect their children from that. But our job as parents is to teach them to love the Lord so much that they would demonstrate that and go wherever He calls them. Look at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who also suffered in his body is done without sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather the will of God. God comes first. Our divine relationships come first, even over families. We have a great example of that in Scripture, because Abraham, you remember? Found that out. Remember the story back in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, well beyond childbearing years, decades beyond childbearing years. Yet God gave them a child. And who would, us would argue, would say that we love our children more than Sarah and Abraham loved theirs. After all those years. But as he was growing up, one day God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your one and only son. Take him up to the mountain. Make him the burnt offering. Can you imagine how that jarred him? To hear those words, we can understand the emotion is there. But they make their way. You remember the story? Isaac says, Here's the wood, here's everything. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham, swallowing hard, simply says, The Lord will provide. The Bible leaves out some of the details that I wish were there because I'd like to know exactly how that played out when Abraham was tying up his son on the altar. What was said? What was not said? Looking into each other's eyes. How did that happen? Look at Genesis 22, verses 9 through 12, and listen to this as if it were your child. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. A little foreshadowing of John 3, 16 there. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Beth Moore writes this, Do you trust me, Abraham, with your greatest fear? Will you pry your fingers loose and bring Isaac here? Have I not made you promises? Hold them tight instead. I am the lover of your soul, the lifter of your head. Believe me, O my Abraham, when blinded by the cost, arrange the wooded altar and count your gains but loss. Pass the test, my faithful son. Bow to me as Lord. Trust me with your Isaac. I am your reward. So love your family, but love the Lord more. Love the Lord the most. Prioritize correctly. The second challenge in our text is surrender completely. Surrender completely. How do you do that? What does that look like in the 21st century? Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 27, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He uses that word disciple. He cannot be my disciple. That term disciple appears 264 times in the Gospels. It's throughout. And there's a part of us, and we know it, we want to do just enough to get by. You ever find yourself thinking that way? Just enough to please the Lord. Just enough to fit the requirements to be a Christian. I read about a preacher who got fed up with excuses. And he proposed the idea of having a no excuses weekend at church. Have you heard of this? Where no excuses were allowed. And he had a couple of things up his sleeve. He said, everybody is expected to be here. He said, number one, as people comes in, everybody's been given a scorecard. So they can take note of all the hypocrites who were there. And then he says, you're going to pass out hard hats because for those who say the ceiling would fall in if they ever came to church. And he said, number three, the church will be decorated with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who've only been to church and seen it decorated that way. Perhaps the supreme handicap of the church, there's too many distant followers and so few real disciples who are willing to carry the cross What does it mean to carry the cross? What does it mean to surrender completely? When we think of a cross, we can think of it as jewelry, maybe a trinket, maybe an emblem that we put on the building that helps us to know that that's a Christian building, some kind of religious establishment. I don't think, then, also, the cross is supposed to be something we wear, but in Jesus' words here, something you bear, something you endure. Our hearts and our minds, trying to be like Jesus. Skip Gray in his book, The Way of the Cross, tells us not scripture, but tradition tells us that in Jesus' younger years there was a revolt, a rebellion near where he lived. It was awful, the consequences were terrible. The Roman crushed the rebellion and to discourage them from ever doing it again. They crucified an Israelite every 10 meters for a distance of 16 kilometers. Skip Gray writes this. The sight of Jesus seeing 1,760 people dead or dying in agony on crosses spaced every 30 feet for 10 miles. Every 30 feet for 10 miles must have made an indelible impression upon the mind of a teenager long before his death The cross was an ugly, hideous reality. He knew that. The people that were listening to Jesus talk knew that. It wasn't a trinket, it wasn't something you wear. It was a hundred pound Roman instrument of torture and death. And when people saw it, it was gruesome. And no doubt they would have flashbacks of what they had seen, what they had witnessed. And so when Jesus said, take up your cross, bear your cross, that's what came to their mind. The image is quite clear. They knew, he knew that was in his future. And he also knew what was in the future of his followers. Here in Luke, he's specifically asking us to surrender completely, to die to our own desires. And when you do that, He will give you the power to sustain whatever Satan throws your way. But make certain you count the cost before you jump in. To know what you're getting into. In fact, let's keep reading verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and is not able to finish Or suppose the king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, will he not send a delegation to the other still a long way off and ask for terms of peace? In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I read about a town in Michigan that bought new flagpoles. They spent $50,000 to put new flag posts throughout their city. And they were so proud of that and so happy about that. It was a a wonderful patriotic moment for the city. But they made a mistake. They spent all that money on the flag posts. They didn't have any money for flags. And so seeing all those empty flag posts just reminded them that they didn't count the cost. Jesus says here, count the cost before building the tower. But more importantly, count the cost before making a commitment to Christ. What's it going to cost you? What does it mean to surrender this way? That's one reason why I'm not a big fan of long, emotional, drawn-out invitation songs of using the guilt trip. I'm not sure that that's the way we need to respond to the Lord. But instead, it'd be something that, yes, you're convicted It can be very emotional, but you've also thought about it. You've prayed about it. It's a decision where you've counted the cost Savior means he saves us from our sin. Lord means he's the CEO. He's our boss. He's calling the shot, and that's all part of saying, Lord, I understand daily. I must take up my cross and follow you. Remember, Paul wrote this in Galatians two twenty. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. How is God going to ask you to take up your cross, to live for Him, to surrender completely? Are you willing to let that dream die you've had all your life in order to walk more closely with the Lord? Are you willing to change your job or your career to enhance your walk with the Lord? Are you willing to sever a relationship with someone who's pulling you away from Jesus? Listen again to his words in verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I read about a guy who had as his email address, Acts, A-C-T-S, 20.24. For Acts 20.24, 20, I put it on the screen. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only am I finished the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Every time he sees his email, Acts 20.24, 20, he's reminded I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's completely surrendering. And that brings me to the final challenge of the text, and that is live consistently. Look at verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we know that salt... Serves several purposes. It flavors things. It's a preservative. There's a lot of different things. It makes things better. And Jesus says in another passage, Sermon on the Mount, You are the salt of the earth. Why would he talk about salt in this way? Especially where he talks about losing its saltiness because salt doesn't lose its saltiness. Not really. But the way they understood it, it did. Because as the Dead Sea would uh, evaporate, it would leave crystals behind, some of them being salt, some of them being other substances. But the people that day, they couldn't tell. They were all mixed together, and so it would be diluted. It wouldn't be pure salt. And so they thought thought, thought, then it would say it lost its saltiness. It's been diluted. So the challenge for us as Christians is to make sure we live a pure life, a consistent life. If we're salt, then be salt. If you're a Christian, then be a Christian. Don't go back and forth, don't send mixed signals. Don't be hypocritical, be consistent. And the challenge for us is to make sure we live a life that the people who are around us, the people who see us at work, we bring them up instead of them bringing us down. Our life is so consistent that people can see that there's no difference in the way we are at church on Sunday and the way we treat our family or the way we are at work, whether you're in a Bible study or in the backyard or out the field or on the court, we're the same. Make sure the truth doesn't get diluted down by becoming impure or inconsistent. Because I'll tell you, and you know it already, people have their scorecards and they're taking note. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You can't act one way with one group and another way with another group and not expect people to notice. There must be consistency. And that's what Jesus calls us to, to be consistent. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you able to handle whatever life throws at you? What do people observe about you? What do they hear when you're out in the backyard at your house? Maybe they're on the other side of the fence and you're just being yourself. What do they hear when you're in the break room? Are you the same? Are you able to handle Satan's temptations through the power of the Holy Spirit? How much are you consistent? And when do you just go with the flow and find yourself in in that shallow end? Prioritize correctly. Surrender completely. Live consistently. Do you remember the story of the Alamo? We all know the Alamos in San Antonio, Texas. But the story, we don't know how much of it is true. There's a story about what happened in those final moments of the Alamo. And so some of it's legend, some of it's true. But we know that story. In 1836, there's that tiny band of weary men who were losing against the Mexicans. Their bombardment was constant, and they were going to lose. They were losing. It was at that moment that Colonel William Travis stood before those few guys and spoke to the obvious. They could surrender. They could give in and forfeit their life that way, or they could keep fighting. But to fight for their freedom would cost their lives. And as the story goes... He took his sword and he drew a line in the sand with his sword. And he basically asked the question, who's with me? And all but one came across the line. Colonel James Bowie, stricken with typhoid fever, asked that his cot be carried across the line. But they all knew when they did that, what they were saying, I die." I'm giving my life. When we use that phrase, draw a line in the sand, we know what it means. Draw, like This is it. It's an ultimatum. There is no one foot on one side and one on the other. Are you in or are you not? And what happened on the cross is Jesus drew the line. He drew a line in the sand and said, I'm carrying my cross. And if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to bear my name, then you have to carry your cross as well. So maybe today is the day where you can do that. You've thought about it. You've prayed about it. And you're ready to make a decision. You count kind of the cost. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that He died for you and He's coming back for you. If you repent of your sins and you confess your faith, if you're baptized in His name, let Him wash you clean and give you that hope of the Holy Spirit. We want to give you an opportunity to do just that. Or to pray for you to prioritize correctly, to surrender completely, and to live consistently. What you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?